started guys you can let everybody outside in like, whoever's waiting outside you can let them in so i'm q welcome to the end of miami a bird road podcast uh bird road if you don't already know is a leftist commie pinko culture politics mishmash of conversations interesting people um we talk about really super important topics like sonic the hedgehog and um bigfoot erotica and winnie the pooh that's just from the last like 10 episodes so you can go back in our back catalog, um, which we suggest you do. Check us out on birdroadpodcast.com. Um, subscribe, rate, review the show, the whole nine yards. We're in Apple Podcasts. We're in Spotify for everybody over the age of 50. We're in Stitcher. Um, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Email me, birdroad at allpointswest.net. So with that said, um, normally my co-host, for those of you who listen to the show, is the uh, inimitable Jewish Dave, David Rosen, but he didn't, uh, he didn't think this show was important enough to fly the l- measly four hours from Las Vegas. So um, luckily we have a huge upgrade. I want to introduce to you um, our, uh, our temporary co-host for the night. Uh, he is the uh, civil rights, environment, and politics reporter for the Miami New Times. You can see his work. Uh, if you pick up a copy of the Miami New Times pretty much anywhere in Miami, you can also check out miamineutimes.com. Um, you can follow him on Twitter. It's uh, Jerry Inelli. Jerry. Hi. <laughs> Proud to be on uh, Miami's only pro climate change podcast. Yeah, uh, we're in favor of climate yeah. change. Wait, no, that's not, that didn't come out right. Yeah. Out. Um, so look, that's what this show is going to be about, right? The, this episode, End of Miami, is sort of tongue in cheek, um, as you hear actual the Miami coming to an end outside. Uh, it's a, it's a little bit of a tongue in cheek title, but not really because we are facing a pretty big existential dilemma. But not as much as the guy whose Toyota Corolla is getting robbed right now. (laughs) I think most people know that there's not supposed to be a city here at all. Like, this is a city that was entirely created through the ingenuity and uh, hubris of man. Um, This is supposed to be Swamplands. And on days like, and nights like tonight, you can tell that it's supposed to be Swampland. Um, and, but here we are, right? There's some five, six million of us down in this region and we're facing an, an existential dilemma. And that's what this podcast is. Um, this particular episode of Bird Road is aimed at, aimed at addressing. Uh, it's likely that there's going to be a time that comes. And for like, if you're, I don't know, under the age of 20 and you're listening to this, you shouldn't be because there's a rating system that's in place. But, um, if you're young, you're probably going to witness a time in your lifetime where Miami isn't viable anymore or becomes less viable than it was uh, if no action is taken, and maybe even if a lot of action is taken. Um, so that's what we're here to talk about tonight. Before we jump into it with our, with our guests who have joined us uh, so graciously on this hot, sweltering evening, um, <laughs> wanted to jump into a couple of, of news items that sort of set the stage a little bit for the conversation. Uh, zooming out, because we're going to talk local during this hour, but um, a couple of sort of larger import stories, and the one that is first up on the list is from the Washington Post and this just came out yesterday so Trump EPA finalizes rollback of key Obama climate rule that targeted coal plants so the Trump administration finalized its biggest climate policy rollback on Wednesday requiring the US power sector to cut its 2030 carbon emissions 35% over 2005 levels 
less than half of what experts calculate is needed to avert catastrophic warning of the warming of the planet. Um, the affordable clean energy rule issued by the EPA demands much smaller carbon dioxide reductions and the industry is already on track to achieve, even without federal regulation. As of last year, the U.S. power sector had cut its greenhouse gas emissions 27% compared with 2005. So I think what we're seeing with this, and Jerry, you can chime in a little bit, but this is keeping in with the, and on our show, we don't usually look too closely at the administ at the, the administration. We, we think that there's a lot more to be done on a local level, but it's hard to ignore when the administration is like this. This is part and parcel with a larger doctrine of committing to this country having committed to something in the past with respect to climate goals or, or emissions goals and pulling back from it in the last couple of years. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's essentially just climate denialism. I think there's no other way to describe it. it, it and uh, I kind of, I don't like saying that, uh, you know, these things are just national and not local, because I mean, any tick up in carbon emissions winds up here you know it, it there's no divorcing those two things and so uh the idea that you know you should be only focusing on local stuff well without looking at uh, uh what the trump epa is doing is sort of ridiculous in my opinion uh but yeah uh they're big dumb guys and they're gonna kill us so uh <laughs> so not much else to say about that <laughs> great analysis no, i mean yeah when you're right you're right but getting to sort of on the local level and we're going to open up the the, the, the talk with uh, Keelan in a second but this is a piece that caught my eye that I actually flagged because this show for those that don't know and I think everybody here does was delayed about a month because of bad weather incredible storms that came out of nowhere again there's a difference between weather and climate but you know can't help but think that somebody's out to get us um, so this story came came out about a month ago and it was from our very own Jerry uh, it was in the Miami New Times, and the headline was Port Miami dredging killed a half million corals, new study shows. So this is from Jerry's report. Coral reefs are more than just unique, irreplaceable ecosystems full of Earth's natural wonders. Studies show they also act as natural storm surge barriers that help break up gigantic waves before they steamroll over cities such as Miami. A recent study says Florida's reefs protect at least $1.6 billion in real estate. The cruise industry, meanwhile, sends a collection of booze and trash-filled ships onto the ocean so the world's least interesting people can listen to Jimmy Buffett, barf, and pretend to enjoy the company of their spouses for a few days at a time. Unfortunately, Miami's coral reefs appear to be suffering in order to prop up South Florida's puke flotilla industry. According to a new peer-reviewed study, and then he gets into a little bit of the details of the study, so talk us through that. Like, what, what were the findings? Yeah, essentially, I mean, this is, uh, there's kind of a long history to this story. Uh, the Port Miami dredging uh, that went on between uh, 2013 and 2015 was just essentially a project to bring more ships into the Port of Miami, bring bigger ships into the Port of Miami, uh, between cruise ships, between uh, like commercial freighters, stuff like that. Uh, and uh, environmentalists at the time were like, hey, definitely don't do this. Uh, it's clearly going to destroy a bunch of corals. Uh, we need those corals, uh, as you just mentioned uh, and read from the story. Corals aren't just colorful and pretty, and I mean, even in and of itself, that's an, enough of a reason to protect them. But uh, more than that, they literally break up storm surge waves. Um, and so 
if you were destroying your coral reefs, you literally are destroying one of the natural barriers. Uh, even if you're like a psycho and only care about your real estate properties, you're destroying the thing that's going to protect waves from hitting your real estate properties. Uh, and so a bunch of people at the time warned this would happen. And uh, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers just basically said, no, it's going to be fine. Uh, and what wound up happening, uh, and basically a lot of this had kind of come out uh, over the years since this happened, because this is a couple years ago, but this is sort of one of the f you know, first formal studies actually really looking at this from a scientific perspective. Uh, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, as they tend to do, uh, underestimated how much of a sediment cloud they were going to dig up underwater, and all of that sediment just kind of floated over, hit all the corals, and uh, killed a lot of them. And uh, now we have some really cool cruise ships, but we are losing a ton of our corals. And uh, kind of combined with this is the fact that uh, as the as we pump more carbon into the air, a lot of the carbon gets absorbed into the ocean. And uh, that acidifies the ocean, and that basically prevents corals from regenerating themselves. And then the corals basically turn white. It's called bleaching, and they die. Uh, and so there's this sort of weird... I think the story is actually really uh, a perfect microcosm of what's happening here, because we have a lot of talk about what to do about climate change, uh, and we have a lot of strong rhetoric, but we also are literally destroying some of the things that are supposed to be protecting us in the future. Um, in exchange for, again, like Disney cruise ships, uh, which, you know. Well, I thought it was interesting that you framed it in, in your lead of the story in terms that Miamians speak, which is real estate value. Not, yeah. you know, not human lives. No, or, no we don't care know, about those. society yeah, or anything those. like that. No. But in the real estate value, which unfortunately I think is the the cart that we always put before the horse when we talk about a lot of these And things. that's the main driver for, and I imagine we'll get, we'll all get into this as we talk more. I mean, that's kind of the main driver for uh, a lot of the political fight to prevent climate change is not so much like, hey, uh, a bunch of poor areas, um, you know, maybe a, a little, little Haiti might flood and, you know, a bunch of people won't be able to afford to get out of here. It's going to be like, oh, actually, our uh, luxury tourism industry might cripple and, you know, we need to protect that. Yeah. And even more cynical is, uh, as people have pointed out recently, is that there is some advantageous real estate, a lot of advantageous real estate in Little Haiti that is somewhat higher, uh, higher placed in terms of elevation. And God, wouldn't you know it? Gentrification, gentrification just found its way there. Isn't it weird how that how that happens? Yeah. So um, it's like a human problem that follows a scientific problem. So. With that, we're going to jump to our first guest as sure. I make this perfect, beautiful segue. I'm so good at this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I want to set that up as sort of a this issue that we're talking about as, as something of a public health crisis. Because I think a lot of times there is this thing, right, where, um, as I filibuster before I introduce our guest, there is this thing where we're really good as a species at if there's a wolf in front of us. And it's going to come into our cave and eat our young. We can figure that problem out. And we're really good at figuring out how to put seeds in the ground and in a six-month turnaround, you know, harvest them for food. That's a problem we can handle. Problems that are this big and long, we seem almost like evolutionarily incapable of dealing with them. So with that, um, I want to bring, bring up our first guest. The person who's going to solve all those problems. Thank God. <laughs> Uh, yeah. She's a biomedical scientist with a molecular oncology research background. 
and an environmental justice advocate who believes in using science to advance positive social change. Also, she's a member of Miami's Sea Level Rise Committee. Everybody, let's have a round of applause for Keelan Ashad Bishop. <laughs> Welcome to Bird Road. Thank you. Before we get started, I have to thank you for visiting my website where that text was Where from. I shamelessly <laughs> copy and pasted. Yeah, how do you call? You call people what they want to be called, and then they like you. I don't I know what's... I appreciate what it. Um, first of all, let me, let me start off with demystifying what that group is that you work with. What is the Miami Sea Level Rise Committee? I know that in the past there had been like a, a consideration of, of renaming it, um, I guess more like geared towards readiness, I, I, but just tell us what, what your involvement with the group has been and what, what the group's mission is. So the group was essentially founded to help the city adapt to climate challenges, but particularly those that relate to sea level rise, as you see in the name. Uh, there have been recent conversations to expand the scope of the committee to addressing climate resilience as a whole, because it's very hard to talk about sea level rise in a silo, which we've essentially gone back and forth about for about the three years that I've been on the committee and then maybe a couple months before that. So the idea was to convene a panel of experts, quote unquote, uh, to make recommendations for the city to adapt. Um, once we got a chief resilience officer, Jane Gilbert, and the idea was to work very closely with her office and assist in some of the things that were going on. And to a degree, uh, we've been successful, but I'm sure you'll have some questions that'll dig deeper into that. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's, it's good compared to 10 years ago where we had our heads in the sand collectively. Um, at least there is the beginnings of the building of some infrastructure to address the issue. Uh, what, I guess, what, what can Miamians or South Floridians expect to come out of a group like this that, like what kind of solutions can emanate from a group like this that won't happen on a federal level and probably won't happen on a state level for political reasons that we'll get into with our next guest, but um, like, w what can we expect? Right, so, Wow, that's a simple question that's not. Uh, so what's interesting about the Sea Level Rise Committee is we're a large group, there's nine of us right now, and everyone has a really diverse background. So we have a land use attorney who's our chair, we have an architect, we have an architect. We have three scientists at this point, um, myself, a cancer biologist, we have a neuroscientist who worked for a decade in the State Department, we have, sorry, four scientists. We have two environmental scientists, uh, we have a, a member uh, who works for a commissioner, but before that he was an underwater photographer. So the idea is that we all come and we apply our expertise and we're able to move things forward in a way that the city may not just have the capacity to do, because obviously day to day there are more issues than sea level rise. Um, and it's a good idea in theory. But what actually happens is that everyone has their issue, their hot button issue that they care about. And so everyone is like, give me my time. I want to talk about insurance. Give me my time. I want to talk about the concrete that we use to construct things. Give me my time to have a presenter to talk, uh, talk about corals or talk about how we should, this is not a joke, drill down 200 feet and like build a wall because that is the answer to protecting ourselves against climate change. Like the SpongeBob move, Bikini Bottom. Like, yes, yeah. exactly that. I mean, um, it's, 
Sounds good. You know, we should consider oh, all the options, yeah. but maybe consider some. Have we tried less. shooting the ocean? <laughs> right. Um, so the idea is that we can focus on issues um, in a hyperlocal fashion that leads to change happening more quickly. Um, but like I said, because everyone has their issue, that's been tumultuous. But we have seen uh, some changes to Miami 21, our zoning code. So that's a good thing. That's a win. Um, the There's a socioeconomics subcommittee um, that is the best committee, in my opinion. But we're working very actively on climate gentrification, which is what you mentioned about the highest land in the county just being the kind of hot pocket for gentrification right now. Um, and so the idea is that, you know, we all kind of have our things that we care about, we move those things forward. The issue is then that regardless of what comes out of the committee, we are just that. We are not elected officials, we do not make legislation. We pass resolutions and it is on the city commission and then their designees to actually enact solutions. So when you're talking about what kind of solutions can we expect, we can expect all the solutions in the world to be passed along, but it's really about implementation or the lack of. And, and you're, and I mean, Jerry writes about these kind of things. Like, I mean, it's, it's a little naive to expect there to be movement at that legislative elected official level, right? I mean, I would say that's paint a the bit picture. Of an statement. Paint the uh, picture of what of, of what the you know South Florida you know so that our guests don't have to do it. Yeah, <laughs> what the, what, what um, it looks like getting something done will, in Miami. Yeah, no, I, it, uh, I will spare you from having to say anything about the commissioners. Uh, I mean, the city at the moment is just kind of barely functioning. I mean, not that it's ever really functioning, but right now it's kind of really hanging on. Um, I mean, you just essentially have kind of a couple factions of the city commission that really, really, really don't like each other uh, and are kind of hyper-obsessed with uh, basically getting revenge on one another in various uh, uh, political platforms and using whatever city resources they can. Jerry, we already uh, did the Joe Parreo episode. Yeah, I know. Do the yeah. Uh, so you all, you all know about our friend Joe. Uh, I mean, so that I mean that is that stuff is funny, but it's like a gigantic waste of public resources and time, uh, and it literally, uh, you know, you can talk about the the infighting, but it literally is taking up time that the city could be using to, to like fix these problems or at least address them in some meaningful fashion, uh, and they're just they simply seem to have. Uh, I mean, I, I I don't know if you would phrase it quite this way, but they they appear to have little to no interest in in a lot of it. Right, um, so... so and I know, of course, you have to be diplomatic. Yeah. Because you work these folks. <laughs> to put that in context, in 2018, I won't specify when, because we're in June of 2019. <laughs> so it doesn't matter when, it's been six months. We passed the resolution along to the commission and it was adopted that uh, we wanted the city manager to review the existing literature, because we finally had literature that they would respect, on climate gentrification and brainstorm solutions. We said, hey, this is your job, do it. We haven't heard anything back, not a thing. Like I said, 2018, and now we're June 2019. So we're not moving at the rate that people are being affected because we know that property values in, for example, Little Haiti are climbing at astronomic rates every year, which happens, you know, by the month. So we're not moving at the rate which problems are moving, and that's an issue. 
because by the time we do have these great, grand, amazing solutions, it may be too late to implement them in a way that really benefits the city. I, I think the gentrification thing speaks to kind of a perfect issue as to weigh this. I mean, this is issue in a lot of cities, but it's just so clear in Miami where, uh, you know, these commissioners, most of their constituents are folks who are impacted by climate gentrification. And then a small percentage of their constituents are people who benefit from it. And uh, the way the city government is at the moment kind of structured, uh, they just only listen to that small percentage that uh, stands to make a pretty penny off of the climate gentrification. And I, I just frankly don't see any movement uh, really at all to, to listen to the folks who aren't sort of, I mean, uh, it's cliche, but funding, they, they're essentially funding their campaigns and their election bids. Um, cool, so, yeah. movement numbers. <laughs> um, Researching you, I came across an, an, uh, a fun, well-produced internet video that featured you. It was about what it means to be a climate voter, and I wanted to talk to you about this because as we get ready next week to host the first um, Democratic presidential uh, primary debate here, about a mile and a half from here at the Arsh Center, um, that's a topic that didn't find its way onto the debate stage in 2016 at all. Uh, during this video, which I urge everybody to go check out on YouTube, um, you dub yourself a climate voter. What's it mean to be a climate voter? Everyone has an issue that they care about, and particularly when you're talking about political candidates who are lobbying for your votes. They have talking points. If climate is not a talking point, then they don't get my vote. That's what a climate voter is. <laughs> I'm not interested in electing you to govern a city that's going to cease to exist. <laughs> that is a massive waste of my time and everyone else's. I'm also not interested in electing you to a position where you can ignore the people who literally, not figuratively, literally built this city. No, thanks. So my uh, reason for participating in that campaign was I actually never considered myself a climate voter. That was very much the lingo. They came along with their campaign and said you'd be a great fit. Um, but thinking about it, I was like, no, that's good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that. Like, if you're not actively talking about the issues that I care about, if you're not taking a definitive stance, then I'm uninterested. Period. Um, it's, it's funny because you first came onto my radar as somebody that was involved in a recent uh, Clio Institute panel that was geared towards um, communicating about this issue, right? And I think that that's a huge problem, and I think that a lot of the people who are maybe your, your sort of comrades in arms and trying to like bring this issue forward tend to be just god awful at communicating it right <laughs> it's it's hard to talk about and then it's it's also hard to like get past the first rebuttals from anybody who um you know in miami it's not so much the denialism but it's more of the uh prioritization it's about like money and how much it's gonna cost and like let's not think about that because it makes our heads hurt um what are what are some things you've learned about communicating with people about this issue? Because I think it's like I think it's really at the core of, you know, there's there's this thing where there's fatigue, especially if you're fully bought in. If you're somebody who's at this show, if you're somebody that's listening to this podcast, there's a point where you consume so much news about this topic that it wears you out. Yes. I'm wondering how you can effectively communicate the importance to people who maybe aren't as aware. Right. So climate has a marketing issue. And if you needed any evidence of that, you can look at the demographics of this county and then you can look at the people who are having conversations about the future of this county. Um, 
it's not representative. Why is it not representative? Because we tend to pick aspects of climate that we want people to pay attention to and then we yell at them you should care and you should do exactly what I tell you to do and you should be an activist but whoa we're not talking about that only in this only according to this very particular list that I gave you we're only talking about the conversation um, this way we're only having this conversation this way and that is so ineffective one of the first things that we did when I joined the Sea Level Rise Committee was have a workshop. The workshop was at Catalyst Miami. Catalyst does a lot of work uh, to improve the human condition among the disadvantaged communities here in Miami-Dade County. And the three things that came out of that workshop is things that were of particular relevance to socioeconomically challenged communities were education and outreach, climate gentrification, and emergency management. We can't do much because we don't have a budget around education and outreach, but what we did was we started moving our meetings around the city, which worked, kind of. Did we get people to come? Yes. Did we get different people to come, or did we have a caravan of the same people following us around the city? That one. Why? Because we get to the meeting, we're it's meeting a classic at- classic podcaster dilemma. <laughs> right? <laughs> all my homies that show up to my shows. <laughs> Right, so we got, we got the same people, why? Because we're going to different communities and having the same conversation. And it's like, hey, we actually can't talk about concrete in a community that does not, that's not, necess that's not where their head is. It's not considering that at this very moment. If their house is in jeopardy, they're not worried about the building materials. They're worried about holding on to it. If they're worried about, uh, if they're not worried about flooding because their neighborhood doesn't flood, then why are we having conversations about storm drains or about king tides? It's none of their concern. And so what's effective when you're communicating is meeting someone where they are. What issue do you care about? And climate is so easy to then intersect with that issue. You care about housing? I have a climate issue for that. You care about health? There's a climate issue for that. Do you literally care about like your street? Because there's one corner on everyone's street that just floods, like five minutes of rain, flash flood, and all of a sudden you cannot walk down your streets. So do you care about just like basic mobility and being able to move around your neighborhood? I got you, climate. So if you take that approach, you can engage people. There are so many more people who just don't take that approach. And it is a choice because they don't care to engage more people. They care to go the other way and engage just the very specific people that they need to talk to to advance their issue. That's why I try and get people to come out to the Sea Level Rise Committee meetings because we talk about a bunch of things that the general public does not care about. And some of those things are very important. Those conversations are important. It's a complex issue. However, a large part of my role has been shifting the conversation from property to people. There's no easier way to do that than with people in the room. <laughs> I, want to, I want to talk about your specific expertise on this issue and your professional expertise because you brought up, you know, the intersections that the, the, the voters or the individual people that you interact with, what, what might be number one on their mind. But from your perspective, as somebody who's studied the science and, the, and the, the social impact of this, what is the most emergent issue? Like, what are we, what are we looking at in a lot of these um, communities that are most at risk for climate change? Like, what, how, how will this problem manifest in those communities? Our economy is gonna collapse. <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> sorry. 
we depend on hospitality and tourism. And people like me with PhDs. For those just listening to this, she just said that with a complete <laughs> stare, just straight face. Just like, just the, 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 the laughter you heard from Jerry was nervous laughter. Oh, it was <laughs> Absolutely. We don't depend on people, on highly educated, highly technically trained people, people who make a whole rack of money. We don't depend on those people to fuel our economy. We depend on the same people that we disregard day to day, and especially when we're having these conversations. So play around if you want to. What we're gonna do is end up displacing the very lifeblood of our economy, and everything is going down. <laughs> so <laughs> it sounds very morbid, but it's also a very serious reason to consider equity in everything that we talk about. Like I said, play around if you want to, but there is no reason to live in Miami if there is nothing to do in Miami because everyone is sitting on a pile of money in their condo. You make a really good point because um, this state, spoiler alert for anybody that doesn't know much about Florida, but doesn't have a great history of sort of sticking up for marginalized people when those people encounter tough times. Any history at all, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> Would be more accurate to say, yeah. Yeah, so we're not we're not good at this. We have not been good at this. We have an opportunity to get good at this, and we're just choosing not to. And it's crazy because we have so much at risk. It's fitting that today is Juneteenth. Yes. <laughs> it's very fitting as we're having this conversation because nobody benefits from being exclusive. Literally no one. And in, our, in one of our most recent meetings, we were talking about uh, climate gentrification. We've been leading a research effort to explore usage of the Save Our Homes homestead exemption as a means to potentially curb some of the gentrification that we see in, in high elevation areas. And a comment was made, well, what about the free market? Like, don't we just have to like let the market do what it's gonna do? And I was like, well, why are we here? What are, we could have... We could have stayed at home and let the market be the free market. We're going to save so much money by not having to boil our lobsters because we'll just be boiled in the ocean if we um, let the free market go. Literally flabbergasted in that moment. I don't have another word for it. And then things went downhill from there. Um, but like people don't seem to recognize that the free market is why we're having the meeting. Issues, it's like the free right? market got us to this meeting. Exactly. Um, but it's a perfect example of seeing an equity issue and just going, whoa, 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 this seems a little complicated. Let's not. Let's not go there. Right. And it's hard. Equity requires sacrifice. It requires us rethinking literally the way that we do everything. But as we're reinventing the city, it's a perfect opportunity to also reconsider the way that we do everything. So it's like this opportune moment if we decide to take it. Um, before we get over to our next guest, I do want to give you a chance to, you mentioned the Sea Level Rise Committee and people getting involved. Where can they go online to see where the next upcoming meetings are? Uh, spoiler alert, there's one coming up on July 1st, I think. Uh, they're usually the first Monday of every month. Yeah, I can check and, um, and also where can people sort of follow you and, and keep abreast of what you're up to? Um, okay, so I'm a millennial. Instagram at Keelan Bishop, that's the best place. Um, the Sea Level Rise Committee meets once a month. Sometimes we have workshops. Those are also public. Everything is public under sunshine laws, which are a bear. I understand the necessity, but a bear to get any work done. Um, just a heads up, there are two-year terms on the board. Uh, we have plenty of people who are in the middle of their second or third term, 
and so it may be time for an infusion of new energy. There are plenty of seats that have very technical requirements. You must have expertise in this, this, or that. Um, my seat in particular, you have to have, quote unquote, expertise in advocating for vulnerable communities, AKA you need ears. <laughs> you literally need to know how to listen. Um, so I encourage people to not only find out what the committee is up to, but also figure out a way that they can work with the committee or eventually take a seat on the committee, because that's really how we're gonna move things forward. Thanks. Everybody, hand, round of applause for Keelan Bishop. So our next guest uh, that I'm gonna seamlessly again transition to, we've heard about sort of the contours of the problem and what we're dealing with and the scope and what's at stake, but what can be done specifically through the political process? We are a political show. Um, so to talk about the politics of Miami's climate response, our next guest, Jeff Campbell, is a native Miamian and is the chair of the People's Progressive Caucus of Miami-Dade. Jeff, welcome to Bird Road. Thank you. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So, can everybody hear Jeff? Give me yeah, a. Can you hear me? Yeah, okay, yeah. cool. Okay. Um, so, next week, as we mentioned earlier in the show, is the first uh, Democratic primary uh, debate here in Miami. Um, I think I already know your answer. I think we, we can already guess your Anybody that follows you on Twitter can, can guess your answer. Uh, <laughs> but of those candidates who are out there and who are going to be on the stage, who do you think is, the, is best positioned to address? climate change and why and why is it joe biden joe biden i was about to say <laughs> <laughs> just kidding um i i mean i think it's bernie sanders um i think bernie sanders has been talking about this since i believe he was on cnn in 1981 saying that the the news and the media is not covering what's going on with climate and uh so i would say that bernie sanders has been you know, in the fight for a long time and has never wavered on climate and making that a major part of his platform, his campaign, whether it was for Congress, Senate, or now as a presidential candidate. So, yeah, I would say Bernie Sanders obviously um, cares. I would, you know, J uh, Inslee, you know, he's making his whole campaign about climate and I'm happy he's doing that. So I'd like to, I'm interested to hearing what he's got to say. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's a few candidates that obviously are on our side, but I, I do believe Bernie's uh, the top one. The national politics, great. I mean, we all have our horse that we that we want to um, back in those contests. And we just got done talking about what happens here on the local level. But I mean, our state is just like this unique miasma of shit for us to have to deal with as a, a marginalized region within an already uh, disadvantaged state when it comes to addressing its most like existential threat, right? The top two thirds of Florida could give two shits about the bottom third of Florida. Right. Uh, talk a little bit about, cause you work in this day in and day out about the, the, the challenges that are presented by not just having a Republican governor year after year after year after year, but having a, a, you know, a Republican-controlled legislature, a legislature that um, up in Tallahassee in the panhandle doesn't really give two shits about Miami. Right. So, I mean, you're pretty much detailed it. Uh, you know, most of the politicians, it's controlled by the Republicans who really don't care about climate. Some of them are on the Trump side of not even acknowledging what's going on. And then you even have some Democrats that also, I mean, they say that they're for uh, you know tackling the issue but they're taking money that you know isn't really helping the cause you know whether it's from big sugar 
or um, FPNL or whatever is going on, not fighting as strongly for solar power or moving over to um, renewable energy in some sort, which would be huge here in you know Florida. We've got a lot of sun, so um, yeah, I think it's it's pretty sad because you know I don't know where to really turn. You know there are a really there are some really good Democrats that are fighting, but you know when you've got a Republican-controlled legislature, and then you have the other side that's kind of lukewarm on actually moving towards uh, changing policy. It's it's pretty tough, and that's it's pretty sad here in Florida. Yeah. Something I've kind of always been curious about, uh, and, and something I, th- I think about a lot is that you know we have a lot of, especially on the local local level, we have a lot of movement to just sort of build seawalls or or uh, flood pumps or whatever it is right. locally down here, but. There really doesn't seem to be a lot of movement, whether it's local cities lobbying the federal or state government or just the state government itself, uh, trying to do anything about carbon emissions, like at all. There just doesn't seem to be any interest in even talking about it. Mm -hmm. Um, There's really only, if there are talks, they're only about adaptation. Um, And I'm wondering if you can kind of talk a little bit more about uh, either maybe why you think that is or if you see anybody who's kind of trying to change that? Um, I, I actually haven't, you know, locally seen many people talking about it and I think it is because they're so distracted with the big picture and, you know, you know, with the sea climb, uh, the sea rising. Not enough people are focused on that issue. So, yeah, I think it's more that they're so distracted, so little's getting done about the major issues that it's like hard to get to all these smaller ones and not enough people have knowledge about it yeah i mean it's just it's tough man to see like the 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 sort of infights the small stuff that are mostly democratic state legislators down here end up engaging in up in tallahassee that are it's such small scale small scale petty infighting it a lot of times it feels like like kabuki theater like it's 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 just designed to be bullshit and not to address these larger issues on a state on a state level it must be really frustrating as a, as a progressive yeah I mean it, it all comes back to uh, money and politics in my opinion which is why I'm a big Bernie Sanders supporter and um, yeah I think that the too many of these politicians have donors that they have to be beholden to a lot of industry that they have to be beholden to and so they don't really they're not going to really fight against it. They want to be in office. They want to maintain their power. And that's something that we have to address, you know, statewide and nationally. We talked about before the show uh, a piece of legislation that's kind of wending through. Well, actually, it's probably at this point um, dead on arrival because of, again, the leadership of what our state is. But uh, there's this House bill that's out there that's 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 going through Tallahassee right now by uh, that was drafted by or brought brought forth by uh, Bob Diamond, who's a, a state legislator, I think, in Volusia County. Bill Diamond. Bill Diamond. I wrote I wrote Bill Diamond, so I trust the version of me that wrote this versus the version of me that's talking. Um, it's House Bill 1369, and without getting into the minutia of it, it's basically one of these things. That, I used to live in North Carolina, in North Carolina. There was a uh, my senior year of high school a pretty hardcore hurricane that hit the hit the hit the coast and went all the way inland to Raleigh where I lived, and literally changed the um, the, the 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 topography of the of the outer outer banks and the islands, and um, it's a big deal, and it specifically it was a big deal to Keelan's point um, for the economy which on that coastal area is built on real estate, 
So the response by the state and also on local levels was to make it illegal to study the, uh, the, the, um, the, the sea level rise impact and to just kind of make it policy to shove your head in the sand. We have a lot of that in this state. And um, this, this legislation, House Bill 30, 1369, that's being brought forward, forward, looks like it's aimed at trying to um, at least open the book a little bit and, and do a little bit of that research. Um, from your perspective, Jeff, have you seen anything that, that gives you any kind of hope that maybe on a state level we'll start taking this problem a little more seriously? Um, I, I do have hope just because it is, it's becoming an issue, like it's impacting people's families and their houses here in Miami. My parents' street, like what you were saying earlier, um, is flooded anytime it rains for longer than like two hours. And um, I'm seeing more and more people um, actually have to deal with it on a firsthand basis so that so I, I have that kind of hope I have hope that there's more and more that uh, you know the younger generation Millennials it you know it's something that they have been learning about since they were a little bit younger so it's it's on their mind and the you know more we can push you know younger people into office maybe people that are less beholden to money into office I have hope that you know we can start making a little bit of a change um, in that and obviously electing more Democrats would, you know, would benefit the state. So, yeah, that's a really good point. Keelan, do you find that that's true as you talk to people in the community, like uh, in, in throughout Miami, are younger people more receptive to this message or are they like almost finishing your sentences for you like they already know? Or is it I mean, is it sort of generational, generationally agnostic or do you find a difference? It's not unanimously um, a bigger issue among younger people. It's there's still some other demographic barriers that are very real. Um, however, because we grew up listening to like Al Gore going, "Hey, hey, the future, climate change," we all kind of had this in the back of our this issue in the back of our minds and now it's just it's a part of our day-to-day -day conversation i do believe that we're more motivated to address it versus our parents were like i mean it would be nice <laughs> if like we all stayed above water but i also may be gone before this is really really an issue we're talking about our future and the viability of our future where we settle and where we potentially reproduce um or try and established like legacies so i think it's just more pressing for us yeah i, I say you got to give respect to the like the baby boomer who's like i'm gonna be gone by then i mean like at least they're being honest they're living their truth jeez as stark and horrible a truth <laughs> as it might be like but every, for every one of those there's a baby boomer who is like unabashedly like advocating every day they have yeah. taken time out of their retirement to go to every commission meeting every sea level rise committee meeting so it's not solely the millennials picking up the torch and running with it. And Gen Z kids have gills, so that's uh, <laughs> good for them. They don't. They don't They're care. gonna need them. Yeah. Uh, so before we get into the uh, the games and prizes portion of this show, I want to give one more round of applause for both of our guests. Let's hear it for them. <laughs> and I'm gonna ask them both to. Uh, Humbly take a seat as we bring up a couple of uh, contestants for Humbly, casually <laughs> the show that I'm calling um, that I wanted to put up on the screen, but there's not a screen. Um, how many people here? Raise your hand if you ever played the game Oregon Trail. It's kind of a generational divide. Oh no, Aaron's over there. He's played. He's a young guy and he's played it. So yeah, 
Um, all right, so what we're going to play tonight is a game that I like to call Tammy Ammy Trail. And we have a couple of uh, folks who, who drew the uh, short straws beforehand that we're going to bring up. Everybody give a hand to Kate and Surya. So let me walk this. Let me walk everyone through this. Um, the way that we're going to do this, we're playing for a prize. It's a prize that um, that uh, that uh, custom tea or custom ink didn't get to me in time, but it is uh, it's t-shirts specifically event specific t-shirts that are going to come like four days after the event is over, which is cool. Uh, but everybody here will will, will get one. So um, you know, keep an eye out for it. Um, that's what you're playing for. The runner-up will get just a regular old Bird Road shitty t-shirt, so um, that's your incentive. Uh, <laughs> I want to meet our contestants. Um, I want to have both of you tell us your name, where you're from, and um, how you, what you're most looking forward to in the coming climate apocalypse. Let's uh, start on my far right over here. Alrighty, so my name is Syria. I am actually a Miami native, but I'm from West Kendall, so you know. I guess I'm part of the people that won't drown right away. There's a, there's a few hills, not really, but there's a highway, if that counts. Um, climate change, what am I looking forward to? Yeah, about perishing horribly yes. in a climate disaster. Well, she gets to watch everyone else die first. Right? Yeah, yeah that's, that's fine. Do my enemies die first, though? That is the number one. Uh, and then to my immediate right. My name is Kate. Um, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. I'm a long way from home right now. Uh, and <laughs> I guess I better learn how to swim better. <laughs> um, okay, so we're gonna we're gonna. I was gonna flip a coin, but I think maybe a more democratic way might be to to see who goes first. Um, it's kind of hard to tell from here. Can we see? Let's just do a height test. Who's taller? Oh. Stand up. <laughs> uh, how about this? This is the way we're gonna do it. Jerry and I are the game masters, and we're going to present each of you with sort of directional options, right? This is like a role-playing game. If you ever played Oregon Trail, if you, no. ever, if you were like a huge dork and you grew up playing uh, Dungeons & Dragons, you know, this is similar game to that. Uh, most of the directions are going to be like, do you want to go north, south, east, or west, okay? Um, we'll drop each of you at a nearby locale. The object of this game is to escape Miami in, midst of, in the midst of an emergency apocalyptic set of circumstances with a uh, additional set of Miami-centric variables that we're gonna throw your way. Um, we're gonna guide you through the consequences of your decision, and if you escape, you win. If you die, you lose. And uh, it's kind of like living in New Jersey. Am I right, folks? <laughs> I wrote, I wrote, this joke will bomb. It's on, it's on, it's on my notes, so. Uh, all right, let's get started. Jerry, I'm gonna do contestant number one was Kate and I'm gonna ask you to read the pieces that are uh, contestant number two so I'm gonna start with Kate and then you'll see like two cards later you'll see you've got contestant number two all right so it's a pleasant afternoon Kate you're seated inside Miami Mainstay Cafe Versailles all at once your lunch is interrupted by a stampede of fleeing pedestrians streaming down Cayocho there's chaos in the streets the sky turns uh, the sky to the east turns dark being a recent Miami transplant you're vaguely aware that Fidel Castro is already dead, so it must be something else. Do you head outside and join the crowd, like a French peasant taking to the streets in 1789, or hunker down and hide inside, like Louis XVI right before he lost his head? I'm gonna hunker down. Okay. Kate chooses to hunker down. 
uh, sliding behind the pastelito counter and through an interior doorway seeking a hiding spot. Unfortunately, that doorway leads to the notorious sex dungeon of Versailles owner and influential Miami business mogul, Felipe Val Sr. Parody. <laughs> parody. This is parody, even though it's actually been proven in court. Uh, or alleged in court. I don't know. You're the journalist. You tell me. Um, Allegedly. Which has long since been abandoned. The small crawl space reeks of expired sexual lubricant and the broken dreams of a thousand waitresses. Hands clasped over your mouth, you stagger out on the Cayocho to regain your composure and assess the situation. Nice. All right. Contestant two. <clears throat> At the same time, we find you miles away in North Miami Beach. You're taking in the sights at famed St. Bernard de Clairvaux, I don't know how to pronounce that, I apologize, a gorgeous Spanish monastery that isn't in Spain, but rather is in a city called North Miami Beach that has no beaches. Uh, you consider the paradox, but only for a moment as you are hungry. Across the street from the 12th century marvel of Cisterian Romanesque architecture, why'd you make me say this stuff? Uh, a monument to rampant colonization, conquest, and the forced assimilation of thousands, you spy a P.F. Chang's. Yum! But suddenly, a bright green and blue flash lights up the sky. You peer to the south, and beyond the horizon, you see an explosion that can only be described as the third act of Ghostbusters. Do you, one, head to P.F. Chang's, or two, head toward the explosion to investigate? Listen, I've watched enough Marvel to know that is the direction you want to go to, straight to the explosion. All right, so you head to the explosion. You jump in your car and head toward the explosion, but are stopped in your tracks when you begin to see what appear to be snow flurries in Miami in June? Curious. Instinctively, being a complete moron, you stick out your tongue to catch a flurry and recoil in horror at the taste when you realize these are not snowflakes at all, but rather fallout from the nearby, <laughs> nearby nuclear reactor at Turkey Point, allegedly. <laughs> This is just like what happened to Chernobyl in the HBO limited series. Chernobyl, you think to yourself, allegedly. You binge that show, so you don't remember most of the plot points. But some part of you recalls that eating the irradiated slices of poison graphite isn't good, so you stop. All right, we're catching back up with Kate. Uh, back on Cayocho, you've regained your senses and are confronted with a terrifying sight, a 40-foot wall of water that's washed out Miami Beach, making its way over Brickle in the distance, heading inland at a staggering pace. Since the Atlantic Ocean hit a crucial desalinization point, and as the Gulf of Mexico has continued uh, to boil, flash hurricanes have become the norm. But you've never seen a storm surge quite like this one. With the water coming from the east, you can go north, south, or west. I'm going west. West. Kate chooses to go west. So you head into the hinterlands of unincorporated Miami's Westchester, a sprawling suburb of Little Havana, uh, uh, west of Little Havana, filled with Cuban folks who can afford not to live in Little Havana anymore. There are sinkholes forming everywhere, a patchwork of chasms caused by a combination, combination of the county and state's legendary neglect for infrastructure and the estimated 67,000 malfunctioning septic tanks in Miami-Dade, which is one of the largest metropolitan areas in the world where leaders considered the centuries-old tried-and-true method of sewage systems and thought, now nah, we're good. You. You veer off the road, and we leave you there and head back to Surya. Meanwhile, back in North Miami Beach, things are starting to look more like HBO's Chernobyl, except this time with actual Russians, not just Irish actors pretending to be Russians. Dang. Like, 
typical American. You prefer your gooey vital organs on the inside of your body. You have a choice. You can head north, west, or east. You go. You know what? I'm already heading that way, so let's just go east. We're going to go all the way. You go east. In the bay, you spot an unguarded catamaran. Navigating the various channels and waterways, waterways, you make your way out into open water with only minimal amounts of human feces getting sprayed onto you by Miami Beach's famous flood, water, flood wastewater mitigation system, a holdover from the Mayor Philip Levine era, which mitigates the negative effects of floods by dumping millions of gallons of wastewater into the ocean. Kate. <laughs> Having been diverted from Westchester to Kendall, you're forced from your car by the original Miami natural disaster, traffic. Wandering through the famed Kulo of Kendall, <laughs> you come upon a public parking lot packed with luxury vehicles and young men aged 15 to 18, each wearing prep school sweater polos with their collars upturned. The smell of Dracar Noir and Clearwater nearly floors you. A pyre with dozens of bodies burns in the middle of the, <laughs> in the, middle of the throng. I wrote this a while ago, so I'm like laughing at my own jokes. It's really lame. <laughs> Uh, while their faces are obscured by the skinned visages of what must have been their victims, you can tell by their dental work, these are, the, these, <laughs> these are Miami's mostly grown children of privilege. Do you approach the group and attempt to become their leader or run? I'm running. Okay. You run, but it's too late. They've already spotted you and they're giving chase. You continue on foot. You might be fucked. Honestly, from West Kendall, that is a highly accurate statement. <laughs> Meanwhile, your catamaran's motor is dead and the sails have hit a strong northward current. You're only a mile offshore, but in your weakened state, you're, you, need, you can neither fight the current nor swim to shore. As a product of the proud Florida school system, you know ocean water is unsafe to drink. Fortunately, you also went to a charter school, so you learned how to drink your own urine. <laughs> your choices. One, drink the ocean water. Two, drink your own boiled urine. Listen, I'm already in a shitty situation. Pun very much intended. So I'm going to bear grills it and go for the pee. Don't tell my mom. <laughs> you choose to drink your own boiled urine. You drink your urine, forgetting that you spent last night at Club Space in what began as an, as an ironic celebration of Miami's club culture, but ended with you imbibing just a ridiculous amount of hallucinogens. This trip is about to get a lot more fun. Contestant number one, it feels like you've been running forever. The boys from Belen are still right behind you. And, you're, and they're gaining because they all lettered in cross country. You spot a second group hiding under a bridge, waving you in their direction. They seem friendly, if a bit rough around the edges, but it could just be the adrenaline. Do you keep going or run towards that second group? I'm running towards the second group. You choose to run towards the second group. On the other side of the pedestrian bridge, and just as you're clear, your new friends push a button on a detonator that collapses the pedestrian bridge, blocking you off from your pursuers. For now, you're safe. Ooh. Okay, you are in the open sea tripping balls. <laughs> you're seeing rotting carcasses of sharks, dolphins, manatees, the noble sea cow, and all manner of sea life bobbing in the shallow waters. Certain that these corpses are fingerprints are figments of your imagination, you reach down and touch a dead grouper. It's real. But what you're seeing is the effects of Florida's notorious red tide in full bloom. But God doesn't kill a school of swordfish without opening a window. If you're lucky, you can scramble across the dead marine life all the way back to shore. Do you do the red tide scramble or try your luck on the open sea? It's a very hard choice. 
but once again i went in going full out straight for death so we're gonna go with that last option yeah you shouldn't touch red tide uh <laughs> you float for hours for days time loses all meaning you pass out on your flotilla in your dreams, you are stung by a radioactive jellyfish and gain all of its stupid, useless powers. Yes, Spider-Man, but Spider-Woman, but jellyfish. <laughs> Contestant number one. With provisions for the road, you and your newfound friends head north. And after days of trotting by foot across the abandoned wasteland uh, that has become Central Florida, spoiler alert, it always was, you arrive in Volusia County, which, <laughs> during the chaos of the unfolding apocalypse, has assumed its true form as a massive penal colony. Fortunately, you're white, so you're allowed to pass through, unmolested. But the other members of your party are arrested, tried, convicted, and sentenced to hard labor on the county's sprawling network of turd farms and trashy-ass beachside bars. <laughs> Do you get a room at the Daytona Beach Motel 6, subsisting on jello shots until your friends complete their sentences, or press on? I'm going to have to press on. Okay. You choose to press on. And freed from the burden of your imprisoned comrades, you make great time to the Florida-Georgia border. Once there, once there, you're lumped into a mass of humanity that is the first wave of American climate refugees. Similar displaced groups in Texas and Alabama have been processed by FEMA and relocated to new homes, but this is Florida, and things aren't so simple. In true Throwback Thursday fashion, you contract typhoid fever and perish in a refugee camp that used to be a 4-H. <laughs> As the death rattle passes your lips, you wonder why you ever left Omaha. All right, let's see if you can take it home. You're still on your boat. You are vomiting, probably stricken with dysentery. The LSD slush, urine hallucina uh, hallucinations have given way to dehydration hallucina hallucinations, which are nowhere near as fun. You are on the open sea for days. In the distance, you see plumes of smoke. Do you, one, just die already or set sail for the smoke? Honestly, Mama didn't raise a quitter, so we're going to go for the smoke. You have been past that a long time. You've unwittingly, unwittingly sailed all the way to Puerto Rico, which has severe... Severed. Severed. Thank you. Severed all relations, David can't spell, uh, with the United States after losing 80% of its population to Orange County. Ironically, following the tsunami and nuclear disasters, millions of Floridians are flooding back into the now independent island. The smoke you just saw was the first sign of San Juan's reindustrial, uh, uh, reindustrialization campaign. The beautiful people of Puerto Rico are building a new Caribbean utopia where everyone can live with dignity and justice free of the corrupted brand of capitalism that brought their ancestors to their knees. The bad news? You're one of the like 10 total people from Florida who doesn't speak Spanish. So there's that. <laughs> So there we go. I think our winner is Surya because she survived. Um, but together, you both learn that the true meaning of the climate apocalypse was the violent nomadic friends you made along the way and also boiling your own urine. Everybody, let's have a round of applause for our contestants. And that's pretty much it. That's all we had planned. Um, I want to say thank you to my co-hosts, Jerry and Ellie, Miami New Times. To both should of our I dab? Is that how? Yes, you should dab. <laughs> Dabbing is great for an audio platform. <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, to both of our guests, Jeff Campbell from the People, uh, the Progressive Pockets. Where is Jeff? Right here. Oh, there he is. Okay. <laughs> and Keelan Ashad Bishop for joining us also and uh, telling us about 
all the great work that the uh, that the Miami C uh, t- tell me the name again C Level Rise Committee C Level Rise Committee is doing. Uh, round of applause for her as well. Be. And uh, the biggest round of applause for all of you for showing up. Thank you very much. <laughs>